0: Welcome to Working It Out, the Art Slant podcast, the show where we ask, does art require an audience? I'm your host, Jillian Dykman, and my guest today is Andrew Mays. Andrew Mays is a Lunenburg, Nova Scotia-based artist, and he has a thoroughly collaborative art practice, producing both studio-centric work and participatory, socially engaged performance. for the prestigious RBC Painting Prize for his work Paint Descending a Staircase. Join me now for Working It Out with Andrew Mays. So um, I'm going to start this episode the way I start every episode of Working It Out, which is uh, to ask you, Andrew Mays, do you think that art requires an audience?
1: I'm going to answer no to that, and and tomorrow I might answer yes to this. and, but I don't think it's so e- it's not as easy as a yes or no but I was, I was trying to imagine uh, apparently NASA just discovered a new earth uh, that's exciting today so that's kind of exciting considering the state of our earth now maybe mm-hmm. uh, and I was trying to imagine okay so does art require an audience say there's somebody out there stuck on that planet all by themselves mm-hmm. um and they want to be able to tell their story or express themselves, but they don't have any audience because they're on a planet all by themselves. We don't know how they got there. I, I believe that would still be art if that person was intending their creation to be art, um, and, and maybe they're expressing it because they have nobody else to speak to, or nothing else to, no other way to communicate, and they and they sort of want to make a mark or. Um, share something, so I think like on, on that. But, may, but, but maybe there's, you know, an intended audience in that. So, so for them to create the work, there's not necessarily an, an audience needed. But, um, but I, but I do think you know maybe there's an intention there or an intention to communicate, and that's generally between. When you're communicating, you're trying to communicate with somebody other than yourself. hmm So, so then, yes.
0: <laughs> yeah, because you did use the word, they're making something to share. So that wouldn't be the same thing as, um, as like artist therapy, where it really could just be for oneself. You know, as soon as you articulate it as something to be shared, then, yeah. then there's an implied audience.
1: Yeah, but I mean, so that person stuck on this new planet could also be doing it for the therapy of it. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, so I, I would say maybe yes to that question.
0: Yes to the audience question? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, so I wanted to ask about your ladder um, in Minus Basin. Would you mind describing that for a moment?
1: Mm-hmm. So this was a project that I created during uh, the White Rabbit Arts Residency, which happens in Upper Economy, Nova Scotia, right on the Bay of Fundy, which is the home of uh, they claim the highest tides in the world, which can fluctuate between forty and sixty feet. And when you when you're in that space and you and you see the uh, the sheer power of that fluctuation of water and that change. It's just, it's incredible. And I was thinking about that, trying to to uh, measure that in some sense, trying to be able to comprehend how much that is in some sort of scale or some sort of measurement. And I was thinking about kites, because I was flying kites a lot of the time, and I was thinking if you were flying a kite from low tide and then you tied it to a rock, could you then... You know have a plastic bottle that was floating up the kite line as the tide was rising so that after the tide descended again you would see how high that was from that bottom point and i was thinking about different ways of measuring my distance and i i thought of a, a quote that comes from um, it was it was talking about human progress and talking about the evolution of technology and how uh, you know humans as we jump from technology to technology we sort of discard the old ones generally and uh, and it's sort of like climbing up a, a ladder and smashing out the rungs as you go and uh, talking about how that's a very dangerous way. Of uh, jumping forth, and you look at the atomic bomb, and that sort of—you know—one of those technologies that we really push to to a limit, that now we can blow up the whole world. So I was thinking about that quote, and thinking about the ladder, and that—and I was really interested in ladders and and you know climbing the ladder in terms of uh, professional aspirations and all those sort of things. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking that would be a great way to measure the tide. Could you set a ladder out at the low tide mark and climb it as the tide was coming in? So that's the long way of saying I built a 32 foot ladder with a bunch of people out of a couple of spruce trees, <laughs> and then strapped it to the half tide rock with a bunch of guard wires and, and some posts, and the uh, more and then waited for a, the tide to. Uh, to come in and out and we were lucky enough that the, that the ladder survived the first tide cycle. So then the next morning uh, after the festival, I uh, started to climb it at seven in the morning, uh, climbing one rung every time the water came up. <laughs> I forget how many rungs there were, but it was about three hours that I climbed the ladder as the tide came in. And then when it reached the top, I jumped in and swam back to shore. I had someone on shore uh, with a timer to let me know when the high tide mark was because there's about 20 minutes of ebb tide when the tide reaches its the height where the where the current is not flowing one way or the other, and that's sort of a safe zone. But when the tide starts going out, you really don't want to be in that water. So.
0: Mm. Oh, yeah, hence the urgency with getting back. So, uh, I mean, what I find interesting about that work is it's, um, I mean, yeah, it, it's, there's a few things going on. Um, the first thing I want to talk about is that uh, there's this performance that goes with it. Uh, how did that play out in, in relation to an audience?
1: Yeah, it, it started, the climb started after a festival at 7 in the morning. So <laughs> there were only about two people there when I started the initial climb. And, and the audience sort of waxed and, and waned throughout the, the period. But by the end of it, there was a definite um, build in terms of the number of people that were watching. And some of my friend Silas uh, Hanavan, was, was cheering every time I climbed a rung. He would start a big whoop and a, and a call. And it became, you know, very sort of... That, that aspect became very performative, where I was sort of just trying to uh, be calm and be aware of my situation as I'm climbing higher and higher up this ladder, and, and the water's getting deeper and deeper, and the currents are changing. And I was, you know, taking all that in and taking in the surroundings, but then. There kept being this sort of pull to the audience and to the awareness of the audience. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Uh, At one point, somebody tried to swim out to me uh, and they couldn't make it in the tide.
0: Whoa, yeah.
1: They they kept getting kind of pushed down. We don't, I don't know who that was actually, but he started sort of at the same point as me on the land, but the tide was going in, so it it pushed him quite a bit and he couldn't make it all the way out. yeah, so that was that was an interesting sort of aspect of it. And that's something that didn't sit all that well when I made it back to the festival after.
0: Mm-hmm. I
1: was really kind of exhausted and stuff, and I kind of changed. And then I, I came out, and there was about, I don't know, 75 to 100 people having breakfast together. And then Silas again was like, Andrew Mays, everybody! Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and then there was like a big... Clap and like and a celebration sort of thing, and that felt really kind of funny to me because it was it was sort of like this heroic gesture or something that I had done, Uh, or you know, I I I didn't feel very good about that uh, that sort of response to it, or it was uh, it was just
0: uncomfortable. Oh, okay, okay. Well, what, what would you have preferred? I don't know. Was it more like um, I, I just wonder if in that case maybe you weren't you just weren't really wanting an audience and it was more of a a thing you wanted like a, a gesture that you wanted yeah. to explore?
1: Yeah, I mean that's that's sort of my intention for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the audience was, you know, I like I I did want an audience there in terms of safety and stuff, and I think you know to experience it, but it was just sort of. Um, it was just sort of, yeah, like an applause and
0: mm-hmm. and
1: all of that, 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 yeah.
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, that's really interesting. I think, um, yeah, what I'm hearing from you is that you were, you were kind of pursuing a gesture and it wasn't about spectacle, um but that it ended up being a spectacle because of, because of the presence of audience. Um,
1: Yeah. And and, and I mean, it very much was a a piece that was about spectacle.
0: Oh, okay. It was was.
1: like, well, like it wasn't, I wasn't thinking about it in that sense, but I mean, you're building a 32 foot ladder and you're climbing it as in in the highest tides of the world. I mean, it is (laughs) very big and very much about spectacle. and, And I think that all sort of came home when I got the ovation at the end of it. And, um, was making me sort of, you know, that's just sort of questions that I have or things that sort of came up in that at the end.
0: Well, the, the documentation that you have on your website is just sort of the ladder and you and the ladder. And so, yeah, that's why I was curious about yeah. the audience. Because a lot of, you know, a lot of. Um, you know, very famous conceptual art and so on, or performances, a lot of the time, there's just a meager audience, and and most of the audience ends up being this secondary audience looking at the documentation of the piece. Right. Um, So, I mean, there's some of that for sure, because, like, Mm -hmm. those, the documentation endures. Um, But yeah, it sounds like there was also a very present um, in person audience. There's a bit of a tension there between being alone and being not alone at all. Yeah. Um, Yeah. The other thing that I I get from that work is sort of, um, you know, rendering perceivable or visible something that is very huge and kind of hard to. Um, hard to perceive, hard to wrap your head around. Um, with your Point Pleasant Park project where you launched 161 handmade kites um, which were made of recycled material, if I'm not wrong. Yeah. Um, and then each one of those was for uh, a, a, either a civilian or a soldier that um, had died in Afghanistan since Canada had brought troops in and there's this thing going on in the background of the politics of the country all the time, but um, people aren't particularly paying attention. And then you make this this kite gesture, which yes draws attention to the wind, but then secondly um, to this number of people who had who had died. For that piece, your audience would have been very specific; it'd be mostly like the people flying the kites. But were other people coming through the park and and sort of learning about the work how how did that play out Mm
1: -hmm. well with that piece um, the piece you know was coming from uh, from a place of uh, of loss and sort of and thinking about memorials and sort of the permanence and the Rigidity of a memorial as, a, as opposed to something that was sort of ephemeral and, and, and tactile. And, mm-hmm. and it, was, it was a way of dealing with the loss of a friend who was killed in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. That was sort of like the st- starting grounds. Um, and, and thinking about the kite as a huge part of um, Afghan culture with the kite fighting and, you know, the kite runners, a, a, a good sort of depiction of that. Mm-hmm. Um and thinking about you know the Canadians, uh, our time there. Yeah. So there were there were different uh, there were different sort of audiences in it. In terms of making the kites, um, I, I led workshops with people um, at several art galleries and, and different places uh, to build the kites. So there was this sort of dialogue about the the kite, the history of the kite, and. Um, <laughs> The kite's history in Afghanistan, and the kite's history um, in terms of war, because it has a military history, as many technologies do. Um, so there was that that audience, and there was that exchange where I was asking them to, to build one of these kites out of recycled materials, but then to leave me with the kite because we were the goal was to to amass the hundred and sixty odd kites. Um, for the celebration, so there was there was that sort of interaction. So some people were coming there because they knew about the project, um, but there were also lots of people that just uh, kind of were stumbling by in the park on a nice day, and, and it was like, oh, there's kites, kite, so I can have a kite to fly.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and, and those people, you know, some of those people that really resonated with um, well, or, or the gesture, you know, they, they really engaged. There wasn't a lot of time to sort of talk about the, you know, the sort of the, the concept and the and the history and the intention in the project, but that stuff was written up in the handout that people were getting at the park. But just, you know, by walking to the park and, and stumbling into a bunch of people flying kites together, some people hung out for like three hours just flying a kite.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and it was... Yeah, it was, it was really incredible to see that many people kind of together trying to do something that is fairly challenging at times to get a kite up in the air mm-hmm. um, and really working together to uh, to make this project happen.
0: Yeah, so uh, you, you do make a lot of participatory work um, and collaborative work where you're either collaborating with other artists or in this case, in that case, you had... Um, just uh, sort of an a art interested public collaborating, or a, a passerby collaborating. Um, do you think that there's a distinction between audience and participant?
1: Well, there's yeah. I think there definitely is a distinction, um, and that sort of depends on the project. Where where some of the like recently, I, I did a project called Language Structure.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I did it at Nocturne, which is an art festival in Halifax, at night, sort of like Louis Blanche. And I did it at Antigo night, which is the same thing, but in Antigonish, Nova Scotia. <laughs> um, and that was, this I, I had uh, three suitcases filled with letters that had been cut out of old political and real estate signs, core letters. Mm -hmm. And the idea was to take these letters and to write words, to write phrases, um, you know, on public space, on walls, on abandoned buildings, on signage, advertising, kind of interacting with the language that we see around us and then, and and, and being able to say something. And so in that sense, uh, you know, it's a participatory thing where it is an art public or it's a public that's engaging in an art festival Mm -hmm. or stumbling into it. And they're invited. They were invited to, you know, to write uh, something on the walls, whatever you like. That was, you know, in the first iteration. Mm -hmm. And... um, and I, find, I found that very quickly that, you know, people were keen to engage. And this is a, a, it was a new project, so I was sort of developing it as I was going. And that public participation was part of that dialogue in figuring out what was working, what wasn't working. And when, when something was so open-ended, um, it, it became very much like people were writing their names Mm-hmm. People you know kids were writing their their you know their favorite sort of uh, skateboard company or people were sort of what do I write and and they were kind of going to the familiar and going to uh, the things that they felt sort of comfortable with, which wasn't quite as engaging or quite where I was sort of hoping it to go because it was a little bit open-ended. But people were taking, like, fridge magnets, they were taking the letters and sort of rewriting it. And there were some good moments when we wrote on the side of a shopper's drug mart, and there were these really large human faces on them, you know, the the, the well-makeup people on the side of a shopper's drug mart. So they were actually giving those people text boxes, and they were sort of in dialogue. But I realized that... You, that In terms, you know, because language is such an open-ended thing, and 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 there are so many ways of sort of presenting that. I it was uh, I felt it was necessary to bring in some some wordsmiths, some some poets or some writers, and and think about different ways of sort of facilitating um, that engagement with the public Mm -hmm. and. And creating some structures because I mean that's where creativity and and where really interesting things comes out. Of it is the confines or the structures, or the parameters you put on something, mm-hmm. whether you know people engage with it in a in a way that challenges that paradigm or they, you know, or whatever it might be. So uh, I I engaged um, a linguistics professor from. Uh, St. Mary's University, who actually found me about the project, he came out and a couple of poets and my writing for the arts teacher from Mascot and Sprague and a couple other people. So they each took turns, uh, sort of facilitating the word games or or the you know the things that were kind of coming out, and then the public could kind of engage in those different things, and that that sort of. Um, Really got people a lot more engaged with the project and thinking about a lot more instead of just sort of rooting through the letters and putting a word up. It was it was uh, a, a much more interesting and sort of thoughtful engagement.
0: Gotcha. So that, and that would have been in Halifax, the second one. Yeah. I I like your observation that the parameters, you know, it's within the parameters that people get really creative.
1: Yeah, I think it's sort of our job to. To challenge or to, to facilitate it so that people engage it in a way that maybe they wouldn't do on the everyday. I mean, yeah. I found that with kids when I'm teaching kids, I often be like, Yeah, you can draw whatever you want, or you can you know, do it any way you want. But then you realize that they're just doing the same thing that they are regurgitating from the media that they're fed, or, mm-hmm. or they're just doing the same thing that the other guy did down the, down, you know. The one kid started so it's very yeah I think it's important to to challenge the audience or the participatory audience
0: mm-hmm. uh, I want to switch gears a bit to talk about your um, your painting in the RBC competition and then your marker artwork okay um, so yeah this is a work with I think I think a different relationship with audience but um, is it different for you? Yeah
1: it's very different it's um I mean, they both, those both came out of studio practice or a studio work,
0: mm-hmm.
1: in a sense. Um,
0: Let's just um, do a little preamble for that. Like when mm-hmm. when you first got out of school, you did the um, the, the
1: Lunenburg uh, Community Studio Residency Program.
0: Yeah, and so. I th- My understanding is that most of the people who do that tend to do something with the community. Is that an expectation of the artists who do that residency?
1: Yeah, you're expected to do some community work, lead some workshops and kind of get engaged in in some sense. It doesn't mean your work has to sort of engage necessarily because you do have a studio, so you can kind of do whatever you wish in that. But yeah, so I guess um, in that time period, I kind of had two different... I mean, I generally have two different sort of uh, threads going. Mm -hmm. There's the work that's sort of site specific or context specific, um, that is generally the more participatory uh, community stuff. And then there is uh, some ideas that kind of get bounced around more. in a isolated studio kind of way.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you see them as distinctive art practices, or, or how do you how do you correlate I those? Think, I
1: think that, that there's a relationship in the sense that um, with both of the with with all of my practice, I, I, uh, I and my artist statement uh, it was crafted by other people.
0: Yeah, I noticed that uh, you had. I don't know how many, five different people?
1: Yeah, five people.
0: Wrote your artist statement for you? Yeah,
1: because um, I figured, you know, uh, you people often write artist statements in the third person, so why don't <laughs> just get somebody else to do it and <laughs> credit them? And then, because I, I feel like, you know, the things that other people say about you are much more interesting uh, to me and... and and allow me a sort of a different way of thinking about what it is that I'm doing. So uh, so in that uh, somebody, Andrew seems less concerned with the making or creating slash construction and is more centered around the role as a facilitator. He is a composer and I think that that sort of works with both of the studio work and with my sort of more public work. I'm sort of interested in creating a set of parameters. Or a situation to allow the work to create itself in, or to to uh, to happen in. So whether it's the marker drawings, which is which started when someone gave me a box of a hundred old permanent chart pack markers, and I ended up thinking about the shape of that box and thinking about how I could draw with a whole box. So I ended up stacking six layers of paper, Stonehenge paper on top of each other and flipping the box over and allowing the ink to be drawn through to bleed through, allow the gravity to take it through those different, uh, and see what what happened with that. So it was sort of, you know, just creating this this set of parameters that allowed the work to create itself in. And that's sort of similar to the paint descending a staircase um which came out of uh, yeah pouring paint down a staircase yeah. and then allowing it to, to to create itself
0: Well in, I mean so in that sense your your practice just ends up being so thoroughly collaborative because you're collaborating with the materials and you're collaborating with gravity um, which yeah <laughs> I think that that's it's that's certainly the common thread between the two
1: yeah I mean an audience is so important when you're making work
0: Mm
1: -hmm. and and, uh oh I was just gonna say with the RBC thing it's been really interesting because I mean I'm I'm making work in a small community and it's a very supportive arts community and stuff but there isn't that critical engagement with other people all the time like you really kind of have to work to have that dialogue about the work yeah um or to like, yeah, just to communicate. Sometimes when you're, we, like, I, I was working a lot in the studio and a lot into the isolation this year, and and that can get kind of weird. <laughs> or you know, you're wondering like, why the hell am I doing this? I'm pouring paint down a goddamn staircase. But it's been nice to have some to have that work recognized on some level by peers or by you know curators and stuff, and and. That little bit of sort of validation has been surprisingly—it uh, feels really good. It makes it—it it makes it feel like you're 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 uh, you're doing it for a reason, and I and I think that's just that comes back to that, that communication or to that collaboration with a wider community. I think.